0: We've been going back to basics. We started last week in this uh, in this letter of the Bible here called Colossians, uh, and we're just going over some of the basic truths of the Christian faith, so we might be encouraged. So that those of us who are Christian already go, "Yep, yep, that's right, that's what I believe." And those of us who are asking questions or are here at the invite of a friend can go, "Ah, oh, that's what they're on about," and work out maybe whether. You want to be one, a follower of Jesus with us. Uh, Now, I don't know if you've ever met anyone uh, who's never heard the name of Jesus, an adult who's never heard the name of Jesus. You meet kids all the time. You haven't gone to scripture yet and that kind of thing. But uh, anyone met an adult who's never even heard the name of Jesus? Anyone? Okay. All right. Uh, One person. uh, Where were they from? China. China. Okay. Yeah, mainland China. And during the sort of the... The communist atheist reign, you know, kind of religion was banned and so on. Uh, Some years ago, I was studying electrical engineering. I met uh, a fellow student in my class who was from mainland China. Uh, He was out here studying. We got talking about life at uni and uh, he said, what groups are you part of and what groups are you part of and that kind of thing? I said, I'm part of a Christian group called Campus Bible Study. He said, "Uh, what's a Christian group? Well, it's a group of Christians who meet together because we're followers of Jesus. And he went, who's that? And I went, oh. Uh, I was completely astonished. It never occurred to me that I could meet a very educated man studying in Australia uh, who had never heard the name of Jesus. Now that man is now a follower of Jesus too. But while it's very rare to meet someone like my friend who's never heard the name of Jesus, it's not uncommon to meet people who are ignorant of who Jesus really is. I mean, people have all sorts of opinions about Jesus, but lots of people are ignorant of who he really is. They've never read much about him. Uh, They've formed their opinions because of what their friends think or just by reading the newspaper, and they've never looked at the source. Now, that's nothing new for people to be ignorant of who he really is. From the first day of his ministry on earth, Jesus caused confusion and chaos around him uh, concerning who he was. Even when he asked his disciples, About a year into his public teaching and they've been following around for all this time, he said, who do people say that I am? If you ask around and do a survey, what do people reckon? And uh, they came up with a whole bunch of different options as to what the crowd thought. Maybe someone come back from the dead, one of the famous people of old, or maybe he was John the Baptist sort of having his head put back on or something like that. Uh, And when he pressed them, his followers, as to what the disciples themselves thought about him... Well, they weren't all that convincing in their grasp of the situation. For here was a man who was nothing like anyone else, who was nothing like them, a man who could do extraordinary things with just a word. He could heal the sick. He could put people back in their right mind. He could cast out demons. He could even raise people from the dead. And he did it without trickery, without deceit. It wasn't a show. Uh, Even his enemies acknowledged that his miracles were happening and they were real. They knew it was supernatural and he was a man who every time he spoke astonished the crowds with the authority of his teaching. He upset the religious authorities with his attacks on their pride and their hypocrisy who could answer any challenge that was thrown at him by anyone. He was a man like no other, a man who after his death his enemies wanted to eradicate all memory of him from the face of the earth and they launched a campaign to destroy his followers and the movement in his name. Now one of those people who went around hunting the Christians as the group group came to be known was a man by the name of Saul. Uh, He was a zealot for the Jewish religion. He was convinced that the claims the Christians made about Jesus were not only wrong but uh, they were downright dangerous. Uh, They were lies and destructive of people's very souls. And so what he'd do is he'd go around, he had letters of authority from the government to go around and arrest and even kill the Christians. The interesting thing is that that man, Saul, is the same man who some years later wrote the letter called Colossians that we've been working through, Uh, this letter to a bunch of Christians in Colossae. But it's not hate mail. It's not death threats. It's not insults. It's not anything like that because he himself, just like my friend from China, became a follower of this guy, Jesus. And if you weren't here last week, we saw that he started this letter talking to these guys he'd never met. who he's heard of become Christians themselves and he just goes over what it means to be a Christian, what a Christian is. He says it's someone who knows the truth about Jesus. It's someone who aims in life to please Jesus and it's someone who God has done something to through Jesus. Uh, God has moved that person from one kingdom into another, moved them from the kingdom of darkness, as he calls it, into Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of light. And so everything about what it means to be a Christian revolves around this guy, Jesus. And so it's vitally important to know exactly who he is. Who is Jesus well, that's the second question that Saul, who changed his name to Paul after becoming a Christian, addresses in this second part of the letter. And he says basically two things this morning. You can tune out after i give you the summary or you can stay listening uh, for the proof. He says two things. He says Jesus is thumping powerful. <laughs> he is the supreme ruler of everything. But he's also the one who can do the most wonderful, loving thing for you. He's the one that can sort out your relationship with God. And I'm just going to spend a few minutes uh, showing you those two things that are in the passage and teasing out some of the implications of that. Jesus is the supreme ruler of all. Uh, you see that in the first part of the section we read from verses 15 to 18. Uh, the whole thing is meant to convey just how majestic Jesus is. Uh, reflect on one of some of the things that Paul says about Jesus. He says he's the image of the invisible God. Now that's a pretty weird concept, isn't it? How can you have an image, a picture of something that's invisible? Um, okay, draw a picture for me of air. Uh, you could draw a tree swaying, you could see the effects, but yeah, he's the image, the invisible God. It goes back to the start of the Bible, to creation, when God made humanity, man and woman, he made them in the image of God and it's a way a bit of talking about authority and rule. So when an emperor would conquer a nation, you know, go to war, invade and take over, uh, he couldn't stay there to rule from the new palace, the new throne. He's got his own country to uh, worry about as well. He's got a whole empire and so what he would do is set up Uh, statues of himself in the town squares and markets in the palaces to remind everyone just who was in charge. You get to see the same thing in the Middle East today. I remember after uh, um, the, um, the, the, the war in Iraq, you saw the images of the statues of Saddam Hussein being torn down. But they were set up to remind everyone all the time, Saddam rules here. But now that he's been dethroned, he's gone... Now, his images come down. You see, with Gaddafi and Stalin and Lenin, if you think back to uh, different countries around, that the image is a statement of authority. And likewise with God. God made mankind in his image to lovingly rule and care for this world as God's representatives, to remind creation who really is in charge and to care for each other as those who he'd set up. Now, Adam and Eve muck things up royally. But here this is saying, Jesus is the true image of God. He is the one who really is God's stamp of authority. He's the firstborn of all creation. Now, some people go, well, hang on, that means that Jesus was a created being, that you know, God invented him, you know, uh, brought him to life because he's you know, firstborn. Well, firstborn doesn't mean born first. Uh, it sounds like it, but it doesn't mean that. Firstborn is a way of talking about the heir of a family. In fact, all sorts of people in the Bible uh, weren't born first, but they were the firstborn sons of the family. For instance, in the Old Testament, uh, the patriarch of of Israel, Jacob, he was the second son of Isaac. Uh, He had an older brother, Esau, was not much older, only a few minutes older, but he had this older brother who was the one who was born first. And yet Esau was cut off and denied, he was still living, but he was not the firstborn son, even though he was born first. Jacob was the heir. He was treated as the firstborn. In fact, before him, Abraham, Abraham the great father of Israel, uh, when God said, you're going to have this great nation, he says, well, I need an heir then. I designate Eliezer of Damascus, who so someone who wasn't even a relative, to be my firstborn. Uh, and so firstborn doesn't mean created or anything, it just means it's the heir, the one who inherits everything. And what Paul is saying here is if you want to understand Jesus, he is the firstborn, the heir of all creation. He has inherited it all. Everything is his by right. And it's his by right because he's the creator of all things. Verse 16 By him, all things were created things in heaven, things on earth, visible things, invisible things. Even kings and rulers of this earth are his. More than that, take a look at the statement at the end of verse 16. All things were created by him and all things were created for him. See, it wasn't just that he set up this world and left it to its own devices, so we could do what we want, take him or leave him as we feel like it. No, all things were made for him. That is, for his pleasure, for his purposes. So I don't know if you're a creative person or you know someone who is. When you make something, be it, you know, you knit a scarf or you do some woodwork and build an awesome games table, like's going on in our house at the moment. Uh, lots of people have contributed to that, but uh, or whatever it is you've made, piece of art. When you make it, you're the owner, and you have every right to decide what to do with it, where to keep it, where to give it away if anyone will have it, where to sell it. Uh, you get the right to decide how it looks. You made it, and so it's yours to do with as you will. And even if everyone else in the world completely disagrees with your choice of colour scheme, you know, you build a new kitchen and you paint it with orange stripes, you know, diagonal orange stripes and lime green as the other stripe Uh, and then you think purple spots, I'm going to put that all over this wonderful kitchen and everyone's going to love it. They'll think you're an idiot, you're crazy, but it's yours and you have every right to do what you want to do but you're going to give me an epileptic fit if I come to your house. (laughs) The universe was made for Jesus' purpose and pleasure. And what's more, he's the one who sustains it all. Verse 7, he's before all things and in him all things hold together. He existed prior to this world and he existed apart from this world and right now he sustains it day by day. So much so that without him, this is saying, this world would cease to be, it would just fall apart. And it gets reinforced over and over again that Jesus is supreme. Jesus is supreme. He's the head of the body. his church. He's the beginning. He's the beginning in time. He's the beginning in authority. He's the, he's the in charge. He's the firstborn from among the dead. He wasn't the first one to come back to life. He raised other people from the dead. So he wasn't the one who was born first from the dead. He is the heir. He is the Lord, not just of the living, but also he is the Lord of the dead. Heaven and earth are his. See, just who is this that we're talking about? I thought we were talking about a guy who walked on earth 2,000 years ago, some dude. Uh, We were talking about Jesus. But this is a description of God himself. Indeed, as he goes on, he says, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwelling in his way of saying he really is God become man. Now some people will say Jesus never claimed to be God. There you read the biographies and he never just went, I am God. Well, that's not so. He did in fact say that a couple of times but uh, he, he said in all sorts of ways. He said that the Old Testament prophecies about God were all about him. At his last meal with his disciples he said, you know what, I and the Father are one. If you've seen God, if you've seen me, you've seen God. When Thomas saw him risen from the dead, Uh, in front of all his friends, he said, my Lord and my God, and Jesus didn't go, no, 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 hang on, you're confusing me with the big guy upstairs. He went, that's right, that's who I am. And so either Jesus is a loony, like stark raving mad, got to lock him away, or he's lying through his teeth, he's like a cult leader with evil intent, he wants to use and abuse you, or he is who he claims to be. Which his healings, his miracles, his teaching all back that up. Thomas was right. When you're dealing with Jesus, you are dealing with the true and living God who made this universe, who owns it all, who owns you. And he owns everyone and everything. The one to whom all glory and honour and thanks are due. But if you stop for a moment and think about your life, Do you think of Jesus like that? As this super powerful king who runs everything, who owns everything, who owns you? Do you treat him like that, as the king and the creator who even your life is supposed to be for, for his purpose and pleasure? Some years ago uh, a much older minister friend of mine was in England uh, and I don't know how he wangled this. but he managed to get himself by a lord to the House of Lords, to the Parliament, uh, for lunch. Okay? And so uh, he uh, doled himself all up and uh, rocked up at the House of Lords, uh, went to knock on the front door, but of course he was stopped by the guards there with the crossed pole arms, you know, the big axes on sticks and stuff. Uh, and uh, they said, what business do you have here? Uh, he said he was here at the invitation of Lord such and such. And they immediately went, whoosh, welcome in. He's expecting, oh, okay, through the doors. Uh, when his host met him, he asked my friend if he'd like a tour of the House of Lords. Uh, and he went, all right, that sounds really good. Now let's do that. <laughs> and uh, he, he saw where the parliament sat, that you had the plush leather seating that was 5,000 pounds per seat when they were installed some years ago. That's a pretty comfy recliner you could buy there, (laughs) that kind of money. We're talking 10,000 bucks per seat, you know. Uh, But he said what the most interesting thing was, was that there's a throne in the House of Lords in Parliament so the Queen can come and sit in attendance if she feels like it. And the throne is set on this platform at the front, I guess kind of like this, Uh, but it's arranged so that... the when she is seated on the throne, she's still head and shoulders above the tallest person anywhere in the room, even a tall person standing up. And so it is absolutely clear who is in charge, who is the most important person here. And so what my friend did, he said, look, uh, mate, <laughs> I brought my camera I'll give it to you. I'll hop up there on the throne. You take a few happy snaps for me. He said the blood rushed from his face. He looked like he was about to faint. And he said, "You cannot do that." And he said, "I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It's all right. It's only a joke." But it was no joke to the man that he suggests he sit on the throne of England. But just imagine if you came up through the clouds and you discovered that you were sitting on God's throne hadn't you better get off quickly and apologise. I mean, you can't say it was just a joke, I was only kidding, because you you were sitting there. Uh, But that's what the Bible is talking about when it speaks of sin. Sin is not so much doing bad things, you know, hate, murder, lies. They are sins, but sin at heart is not acknowledging who truly is the king. It's not caring that God rules, it's a slap in God's face. More than that, it's spitting in his face, stealing his glory, willingly corrupting ourselves because we just want to be the boss. And the Bible saying there is hell to pay for that. And there's hell to pay because God takes you seriously. He takes your rebellion seriously. You are not just some insignificant ant. You are important, your decisions are important. But God will hold you to account. And so those first few verses, if, all they were, if that was all the Bible gave us about Jesus, we'd be doomed. We'd be standing as condemned men and women before the great and mighty throne of Jesus, the supreme rule of all, whose authority we have rejected and despised. But no longer has Paul laid out Jesus' supreme power and majesty, then it turns at once to show his incredible care and love even towards us rebels... He says, Jesus is the supreme rule of all. You've got to get that clear. He's the Lord of creation. He's the king of the universe. But he's also the reconciler of God's enemies. See there, verse 19. He says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish, free from accusation. So he says we stand in trouble, right? We, we're cut off from God, enemies. You don't want to be an enemy of God, right? We're enemies though because of our evil. That's a very, very strong statement. Enemies in our minds, enemies in our actions. Uh, Not enemies of some nameless group of insurgents overseas. This is talking about being enemies of God. We are at war with him, contending with him, objects of hate and and, disdaining each other. And he says no one's neutral. You you can't say, but I I just was minding my own business and I'm just trying to stay out of God's way. You're still an enemy. You're an enemy combatant. It's a fight we cannot ever hope to win, for who can contend with God and survive. But that makes this second thing that Paul says about Jesus so astonishing, that he, the one who holds all the power, the one who we have rejected, the one whose wrath we have incurred, is the very one who makes the approach for peace with us. And here is a truly staggering reality that without this incredible gesture of love and peace, there is no way of ever coming back to God. For what he says here is that Jesus is the one, the only one, who can and and does reconcile warring parties, the warring parties of God and humanity. God was pleased in Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, be they things on earth, things in heaven. How? By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. He's talking about what happened that first Easter. Good Friday. Why it's so good? Where Jesus died on a Roman cross, which was an instrument of torture and execution, all rolled into one really good package. (laughs) A punishment reserved for Rome's worst enemies, for traitors and insurrectionists. And what this is saying, indeed, what the whole Bible is saying, is that it was no accident that Jesus ended up there. He wasn't a victim of circumstance. He wasn't cured because he couldn't have avoided it somehow. In fact, he came as God to earth to explicitly do this. A plan concocted in the mind of God, a plan foretold by the prophets of old, a plan put into effect the day that Jesus died. For what was happening in his death was that he was being offered as a sacrifice for sins. He was dying as a substitute for us. He swapped in. Somebody has to pay. It should be us, the rebels. But what Jesus did in his love for us in order to have mercy and bring us forgiveness and healing was that he gave up his life for ours. If I can illustrate this way, and I know some of you would have seen this years and years and years ago, um, just imagine for a moment, what are we going to pick on? The fan. There, it's above me. It's got three fins. Uh, let's imagine that that fan, however poor is that's God, um, Just for instance, bear with me. That's God. And this is me here, this hand. And I'm cut off from God. This isn't a hymn book anymore. It's the barrier that exists between me and God. And I cannot do anything about it. It's my fault that it's there and I'm trapped and no way to deal with this problem. And yet what what this is saying, what the Bible is saying, is that God in his love came here. He's this hand, Jesus. And what happened on the cross when he shed his blood is this, so that if I'm trusting him, I want what he's offering, what is there now between me and God? Nothing. No barrier. Nothing in the way. I can go out on my own and say, no thanks, I don't want what you did. You could get nicked. I've got to pay for that. But he says, trust me. And you don't have to earn it, it's a gift. And you can come home. See that in verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish, free from accusation, straight swap. Him, the innocent one, for us, the guilty ones. So that when he takes my place, I am seen as holy without blemish, free from accusation. I'm not innocent, I'm guilty, but God now treats me as innocent. And not just without fear of punishment, but reconciled. That we've come back together as friends. No longer an enemy, but a friend. No longer an outsider, but a child. No longer an object of hate, but of love. That's what his blood shed on the cross achieves. And I can tell you that is a great relief to know that. A great relief. Uh, One that I hope you know. A great relief to know that there's nothing to fear from the one who I have made my enemy, the one before whose throne and at whose hands I stood condemned. It's a great relief, joy, elation. Do you have that relief? It can be yours. Do you want to be free from accusation before God? Do you want to know that you're going to make it through judgement and be part of God's heavenly kingdom in joy and bliss for eternity? Do you want to know that you stand forgiven now as a child of God, as a friend of God? He is. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. But he has paid for it. And all you can do is trust him, trust Jesus. And that's why Paul ends with this caveat in verse 23. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is what the good news of Jesus and Christianity is about that you can come home and be his again at no cost. But you've got to trust him on it. And so I want to wrap up by just asking you a, a series of questions in relation to these three questions. The yes, no questions, so they're not complicated, about how you're going with Jesus, how how you want to respond to him, how you are responding to him. Where do you stand? Okay. All right, test yourself. Are you in awe of Jesus? Jesus is not someone to mess with. He is the creator, sustainer, owner, ruler of this world, including you. Your life is in his hands, like it or not. Your future is in his hands, for good or for ill. Are you in awe of him? Are you grateful to him? Grateful not just for your life as his creation, but grateful that he would love you. So much that he would come to take your place, die for you, suffer your punishment that you might have life. Have you thanked him for his offer? Are you grateful to him? Are you safe in Jesus? Have you changed sides? Are you still running from him or pretending with him? You know, we can all put on a good face with each other and impress each other. Uh, We can try and pretend with God, but are you actually his? Do you truly know him as your ally, as your saviour, as your friend? Do you know what he did for you and have you trusted him with your life? Are you safe in Jesus? Are you in awe of Jesus? Are you grateful to Jesus? Are you safe in Jesus? If you can honestly say yes to those three questions, rejoice because you're his and he is yours. And, and continue in your faith, trusting Him, no matter what might be thrown at you. Lots of things might be thrown at you in this life as a Christian. Uh, you know, there's the general suffering that everyone goes through of loss and unemployment, death of relatives. Uh, one of our eight o'clock families uh, lost a sister yesterday morning, uh, tragically. Um, things can happen, and you you might be wondering where God is in kind of things, but Uh, It might be insults and things. It might be people with the point of a gun in the Middle East pointing and say, are you one of Jesus or not? You've got to continue in your faith. Keep trusting him no matter what comes. But if you said no to any of those three questions, uh, be glad for your honesty and be glad because you're living in a time in history when the offer of peace and reconciliation uh, with God through Jesus still stands. Recognise the danger you're in and come to Him. The offer doesn't last forever. God has set a day, an end date. But come to Him while there's still time. Now, in the bulletin, in the out, the handout uh, on the inside, on the right-hand column, there's always a prayer for the day, written specially around the theme of things. Uh, you see, there's three there's three groups of things at the bottom. there. the middle one is the prayer for the day. Uh, I wonder if you might pray that with me. Almighty God, we thank you for your son Jesus Christ who reigns as the king over this world, his church and even death itself. Thank you that he died to reconcile us to you by bringing forgiveness and cleansing from all our sins. Help us to trust him for salvation and trust his leadership in our lives each day, both now and forever. Amen.